Happy Advent, everyone. For the next month here, we get the privilege of joining centuries of believers who have gone before us in commemorating, anticipating the dual anticipation of celebration of the birth of Christ on Christmas and his return on a day that we don't yet know. So today, we're about to look at our first scripture text in our series, but before we jump into that, I want to say special thanks to Jocelyn Brumby, who has painted uh, four paintings, one to go with each of our scripture texts in our series. You see the first over there, it's also on the front of your bulletins. She's made one of those for each of the four weeks based on the scripture text, so when you see Jocelyn, make sure you thank her. Let's pray together. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Think about a mountaintop experience you had, spiritually speaking, at some point. Maybe it was a summer camp in high school. Maybe it was a weekend retreat during college. Maybe it was a mission trip. You went on somewhere along the way. A time when you felt you were on fire for God. You were intoxicated with the experience. You were overflowing with motivation to live for Jesus. And then you came home, right? And it lasted for a little while, right? But then there were dishes to do. There were bills to pay or homework to complete. There Uh, all the people around you back home hadn't experienced what you had experienced, so it was hard to connect with them over it. And then after maybe weeks, maybe months, you ended up saying to yourself, what happened to that spiritual high that I had experienced, right? There are a lot of people who have had a God moment like that, who burn brightly for a short period of time, but how many are equipped when the journey with Jesus shows itself to be a marathon and not a sprint? That's a question that Jesus addresses in our sermon text today. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25? Matthew chapter 25. A little background as you're turning there so we can situate this in its context. This passage happens to be part of something called the Olivet Discourse. That just means it's an extended sermon that Jesus preached while he was on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. It spans all of Matthew chapter 24 and 25. The topic of this Olivet Discourse is what's coming in the future, the near future and the distant future. He's telling his disciples what to expect. And the main message in these two chapters is, hey, be faithful at all times because I'm leaving And then I'm coming back, but you don't know when I'm coming back. I'm coming back in an hour you don't know. Um, In order to communicate that message, Jesus lays out four different parables over the course of these two chapters. Um, Parables are stories that unveil truth by inviting the hearers into the story to see themselves in the narrative, and they are stories that invite... Uh, action. Uh, what we're going to look at today is the third of the four parables in this section, the one in chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, but all four are about awaiting some sort of arrival. Okay, so in the first parable, the one uh, before, we, before the one we're reading, 
The arrival happens at a surprising time. It catches the owner of the house off guard. Okay? In the second parable, the arrival happens earlier than expected. But Jesus is going to cover all the scenarios in, in this section, in this sermon. So in the passage we're going to look at today, he tells a story in which the arrival is later than expected, actually. Um, the question then for us is going to be from Jesus is, will we be prepared when Jesus returns, even if he is delayed? Will we be prepared when Jesus returns, even if he is delayed? Here's what I want to do first. I want to just survey the text. Just look at the parable. Just walk through it. I'll stop along the way and uh, comment briefly on the surface level, not giving much analysis, just so we understand the basics of the story. So if you'd take a look with me, I'm going to read Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13, with some comment. This is Jesus speaking. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So we have a wedding here. Weddings at this time would have been a seven-day feast, a huge event. It would have been the biggest deal in the family and in the village. Everybody would be talking about it. And here's how it worked on the wedding night, okay? The wedding party, what we would think of as the bridesmaids, the groomsmen, they are at the groom's house where the party's going to take place, the groom's family's house, right? And then the groom leaves there to go to the bride's family's house to negotiate the bride price, the dowry, on the wedding night. If they can come to an agreement there at the bride's house, then the bridegroom starts to come back home to his house, and the wedding party will go out in the street to meet him and welcome him home with their lamps, since it's late at night, and welcome him to meet his bride so that the party can begin. That's the way a wedding night would work. It was the dream of any young teenage girl in Israel at this time to be one of the bridesmaids. Uh, they called the, that's what's called the virgins in this uh, in this passage. The ten virgins, these bridesmaids. You'd want to be one of those. This is what everybody would be Instagramming about in town all week. So actually, the converse is you. This would be a nightmare to miss out on the party that everybody else is talking about. That's a little setup there in verse one. On to verse two. Speaking of the virgins, the bridesmaids, five of them were foolish and five were wise. So Jesus uses a round number, ten bridesmaids. Um, He sets it up as though this story is going to be a contrast between foolish and wise. Let's see what's foolish about the foolish and what's wise about the wise. Verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Historians tell us that there were probably about 15 minutes of oil in one of these lamps. So if you were expecting to be part of this procession that welcomed the bridegroom back home to meet his bride for the party to begin, there's no way you're going to make it unless you brought extra flasks of oil, right? But half did in this story and half didn't. And then we get the decisive factor in the story. Verse 5 is kind of the turning point that it all hinges on. It says, as the bridegroom was delayed, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So the bridegroom's taking a long time, longer than expected. All ten fall asleep. Verse 6. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. So the coming of the bridegroom would have been announced repeatedly. It is here. They all wake up. They scramble to get their lamps ready. But we already know that half of them are going to have a problem. And that's what we see in verse 8. 
And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Can you imagine the desperation there? This is what you've been waiting for, this wedding party. It's now the time. The agreement has been reached. It's time for the bridegroom to come meet his bride. You have the privilege of, getting part of being part of ushering him back home for the band to start playing, the party to begin. All ten want to be a part of that, desperately. But half of their lamps are running out of oil, and so the foolish make that request of the wise. Verse 9, But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Here's the problem. If the wise tried to share their oil with the foolish, then all of their lamps would run out before the party started. It would ruin the party, right? So they say, hey, you're actually going to have to go buy it for yourself. We can't give you ours. Let's listen to how the story ends, verses 10 through 12. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That's the story. Now let's do some interpreting here, because in a parable, different pieces of the parable are representative of different things. First, who's the bridegroom? In the Old Testament, the bridegroom is an analogy that God uses for himself often, and this is one of the times in the New Testament where Jesus has the audacity to claim that metaphor for himself. He's saying that he is the bridegroom, and he can do so because he himself is God in the flesh. So then the bridegroom's coming represents the return of Jesus after he has gone away for a time. The New Testament teaches, doesn't it, that we now, as well as Matthew's readers originally, are living in the time between Jesus' first and second comings. After his first coming, he lived, died, rose again, ascended to heaven, where he's now at the right hand of the Father, and there's a day coming when he will come again to bring his own home. And just like in the story, that coming has been announced in advance. Who are the ten virgins then? That's the church. The expectant community of Christ followers who are gathered, just as we are this morning, as we await the return of our king, our bridegroom. And sometimes, though, it feels like it'll never come, doesn't it? You ever feel that way? Like Jesus will never come back? It feels like we're going to have to wait forever? Uh, that's why the story is told the way it is, I think, with a delay. With the, with the bridegroom being later than expected because Jesus knew that it would feel this way to us. And then what's the wedding feast that we're headed for in the end? The wedding feast is a, an analogy used several times, a metaphor in the New Testament for the blessing of the kingdom of heaven or said differently, the, the coming consummation of the great wedding between Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride. Uh, in other words, it's what we would call heaven what we'd ordinarily call heaven, the place where we experience perfect joy for all of eternity in the presence of God. But then why in the story is the door decisively locked? Why does Jesus tell the story that way? It's representative of final judgment, final judgment that's talked about throughout Scripture that when Jesus returns, it will be too late to repent. It will be too late at that point to turn to him. For those who aren't prepared in that moment, Jesus only ever teaches the certainty 
of permanent exclusion from the feast. One final question, interpreting what's going on here. Why would Jesus tell the story in such a way that the wise bridesmaids can't share with the foolish ones? I think it's to illustrate that one person's preparedness for Jesus' coming can't benefit another's unpreparedness at that time. Um, Here's how one commentator said it. Commitment to Christ can neither be loaned nor borrowed. Commitment to Christ can neither be loaned nor borrowed. And that's an important reminder for those of us especially who have believing parents who may be tempted at times to just lean on our parents' faith instead of ever making it our own. In other words, as we zoom out on this whole parable, um, what Jesus is saying is that when he came the first time, some were ready and some weren't. We have stories of both in the Gospels. Simeon, Anna would be two that were ready when Jesus came. The Pharisees, Herod, they they were some that were not ready when Jesus came. And Jesus is saying in this parable, it's going to be the same the second time. There will be some who are prepared for my coming, and there will be some who will be unprepared for my coming. And that will be evidenced, in some cases, in a failure to remain ready despite a delay. The prepared will go into the greatest wedding feast that's ever been experienced, and the unprepared will be locked out forever. Now that that foundation's been laid here in this text, I want to just finish our time by spending a few moments in some deeper analysis. And I'm, I'm hopeful that by focusing on the wise versus foolish contrast that Jesus sets up here, that we'll be able to bring this contrast home to where we are in our own lives where we live, okay? So, four-part contrast. First, there are apparent similarities between the wise and the foolish bridesmaids. Did you notice that? Like, all ten expected the groom to come sooner than he did. All ten are disappointed by his delay. All ten have oil in their lamps originally. You see in verse 8, the way they worded is our lamps are going out. So all ten had oil in their lamps originally. All ten fall asleep. All ten are caught by surprise when the shout goes out. So for a casual observer, you might not be able to tell the difference among the ten, right? They look very similar. I think Jesus tells it that way because... He knows that's the way it's going to be in the church. Doesn't he tell other parables along the same lines? He talks several chapters before this about the weeds and the wheat growing up together. The wheat being those in the church who truly belong to Christ, and the weeds are those in the church who don't truly belong to Christ, but they look kind of indistinguishable when you look at them. He says both will grow up together until the end. It's the same here. Uh, There are apparent similarities among the ten, um, but some truly belong and some only appear to belong. There's a distinguishing event that sorts them out, and it's the delay, isn't it? Because before the delay, there's no distinguishing feature among the ten. They're all kind of in the same boat. But after the delay, it becomes increasingly clear that some have prepared for a potential delay, And others were only prepared for short term. So the delay then serves a purpose. 
And I think that it does the same in our lives. With every day that our Lord delays in coming back, for us, it becomes increasingly clear where each of us stand. Are we among those who were just in this Jesus thing for the short-term high that we experienced one time at a camp? Or are we among those whose faith has the sort of staying power for the long term? There's divergent outcomes for the two groups, of course. We've seen that. But the finality of the outcomes is worth further reflection, I think. At the end of the story, half of them are enjoying the party, while the other half are locked outside, banging on the door, demanding to be let in. In real life, if this would have happened in this day, it's almost certain that those five foolish bridesmaids, as unprepared as they were, would have been let in in the end. They would have been publicly shamed, probably, but they would have been let into the party. It's a seven-day party. The, The bridegroom, any reasonable bridegroom, would have let them in. So it would have been shocking to Jesus's hearers when he told this story in such a way that they were locked out. Like finally, like there's no indication that they were ever let in. Why does Jesus tell it that way? In light of the rest of what he teaches, the rest of what the Bible teaches, I think it might be something like this, that he's making the point that when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, that ultimate wedding feast there will be no, uh, nobody will hear this from God. You know what, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, but all right, whatever, I'll, I'll let you in. Nobody will hear that. We are all given a chance to be part of that wedding feast, but when Christ returns, that chance will have expired. Does that seem cold or heartless by Jesus? Like, we might think this, like, these poor bridesmaids, right? Young girls, they've been waiting their whole life for this. They've been excited. This is what they've been excited about for forever. They make one careless error, and then they get locked out of the party permanently. But it's not that, is it? It's really important that we make sure and clarify that it's not that. These aren't people who have a momentary lapse after a lifetime of diligent preparation, right? That's not what's going on here in this text. These are people who were never actually prepared. They were happy to have their lamps lit for 15 minutes, but they didn't bring any oil. Uh, And it's... That's an indicator to us of who in the end Jesus is trying to make a point will be excluded from that great wedding feast, from the kingdom of heaven. It's it's not those who have a momentary lapse that he has in mind. It's those who never actually prepared for the coming of the kingdom in the first place. That's the critical distinction. This might be the most important part of our time together this morning in this sermon. Uh, because in these next couple minutes, I'm just going to drill down for a moment into what exactly is the difference between the foolish and the wise bridesmaids. I see a three-part distinction in the text, and each of the three is going to drill a level deeper until I get to what I think is the root of the difference between the two. Okay, First, the wise persevere until the end. 
the wise persevere until the end. They all had oil. Just the five of them didn't have enough. That's an illustration of what Jesus said back in the last chapter, chapter 24, verse 13. Here's what Jesus said. He said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, it's not enough to have had that mountaintop experience where you raised your hand and prayed a prayer one time and then you're good to go forever. It's who endures to the end will be saved, in the words of Jesus. Well, why do the wise persevere to the end? The wise prepare before they go to sleep in the story. The wise prepare before they go to sleep. All, of the, all ten of them sleep, don't they? It's just that the wise can rest easy. The wise bridesmaids can rest easy because they know they've left nothing for the last minute. No last preparations to be made. They have a spiritual supply that will last. They've thought about the possibility that this night is going to be harder or longer than they expect. And they've prepared for that. They're ready with reserves for the long haul. And you know, by the way, that's why we at North Sub teach, equip, train the way that we do for the long haul, right? We're, we're not really a sexy church. We're not really a hyper-emotional church, a church that tries to deliver epic experiences. We're a long haul type of church because we believe that following Jesus to the end, enduring to the finish line will be harder than any of us realized when we first got into it. And so what we're trying to do week after week on Sunday mornings as we sing the songs that we sing, as we preach the way we preach uh, throughout the week in our life groups and our various ministries, what we're trying to do is drill down deep. We're trying to drill down deep to, to provide each other, to admonish each other, to encourage each other in the sort of faith that can sustain itself through years and even decades of following Jesus if he continues to delay in returning. So the wise persevere into the end because they prepare before they go to sleep. But I don't think that either of those actually is the root, the deepest difference between the two. Do you see what the bridegroom says is the difference between the two? Verse 12. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. There's the root of it. That the wise are known by the bridegroom. That's what he says the difference is. That's not what you expect him to say, right? That theme, that theme of knowing hasn't been part of this story so far. It, besides, what, what bridegroom doesn't know his wedding party, right? But of course, Jesus isn't saying that he's not acquainted with all of us. He's saying that some of these bridesmaids never had the relationship they thought they had with the bridegroom. It's the same thing that Jesus said several chapters before this. In Matthew chapter 7, he's talking about the day of his return. And he says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These are people who have done a ton of ministry. They've served in the church. And Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that when he returns, there will be people who were certain that they would be included in the kingdom of heaven who will nevertheless be excluded. People who did things for Jesus, but who never actually knew Jesus, or to say it more precisely, Jesus never knew them. 
And that's because the knowing here, I never knew you, and the knowing in Matthew 25, when he says, I do not know you, isn't just an acquaintance type of knowing. Jesus knows every hair on every one of our heads. It's a sort of knowing of a real relationship, a vibrant, intimate relationship. That's what Christianity is. A vibrant, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. Do you have that? Have you experienced that? Have you been included in his family? That's the only thing that can sustain faith over the long haul to the end. Jesus himself gives us the big idea here in the end, and we can say it in one word based on verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch. Not that we need to be consciously thinking about his return 24-7, right? Didn't all ten sleep? It's okay to sleep. But we can rest easy if we've been watchful, if we've been diligent in our preparation and making sure that we have that vibrant personal relationship with Jesus that can sustain us over the long haul. Maybe you've had a mountaintop experience with God once. Me too. This passage is a reminder that many will have that experience yet be shut out of the great feast in the end. The question for all of us that's asked by this text is, have we made preparations for an enduring faith? That preparation might look different for each of us today. The Lord might be calling each of us to something different. For one, it might be to forgive that person you haven't forgiven. That might be the action step to make preparation in your heart today. For another, it might be to get serious about getting in God's word. For another, it might be placing your faith in Jesus for the first time and entering into that personal relationship that you've never had, but you've just been leaning on your parents' faith. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's calling every person to do in preparation, but I want to close just with the reminder that before this text or any text in the Bible is advice to us, like watch, keep watch, it's first and foremost good news, isn't it? Because before Jesus ever said watch, he tells us about this feast that's coming. Let's remind each other about what that feast is. The bridegroom happens to be the king of the universe. And we happen to get the privilege of being included in his bride. We are filthy in and of ourselves. We are unseemly. We are unlovely, unlovable in and of ourselves as his church. Yet, this king of the universe, our great bridegroom, came at great cost to take on human flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Lived a perfect life, died in your place and in mine to wash us clean so that we could stand before him on that wedding day as a pure and radiant and spotless bride. That's the good news. And that's the hope that we have of what's to come when Jesus returns and If we believe what this Bible says, that return could come at any day. It could be right around the corner. Are you ready for Christ's return? And will you still be ready if he decides to wait longer? Let's pray. Lord, please move in our hearts to speak to each one of us and reveal to us what sort of preparations you want us to make during this Advent season. As we prepare our homes 
to receive visitors as we prepare our families to celebrate Christmas. Lord, help us first and foremost to be concerned with preparing our hearts and preparing spiritually for your return. It's coming at a day and an hour that we don't know, but that you tell us is coming soon. Lord, should you delay, help us to be the people who have an enduring sort of faith, not a flash in the pan, not just a merely emotional high. Help us to have that rooted, dug-down faith and help us to keep calling one another into that and encouraging each other into it and exhorting each other in that until that day when you bring us home and we get to hear those words, good, well done, good and faithful servant, and we get to partake with you in that forever feast. In Jesus' name, amen.